Let us open the precious Word of God to the epistle of Paul to the Romans. Romans chapter 1. We stand on the wonderful opportunity of studying this epistle that comes first in the Pauline epistles. After the four Gospels that tell us of the life of our Lord Jesus Christ, we have the Acts of the Apostles who were his specially chosen teachers and the highest office in his church. And then we have first the epistle to the Romans. It is first for a number of reasons. It's first in its length because it's the longest. It is the deepest, the broadest, the highest in all the gospel doctrines that it covers. That doesn't mean that it has to be your favorite, but it is certainly an important one, and the Lord put it by His providence first. Even though it was certainly not written first, it was written toward the end of His life, as He makes mention in here, of how long He had wanted to come and visit them and hadn't so far. And He talks about all of His other travels as far as Illyricum before He ever wrote this epistle. But here we have it, and we stand before it, And we're thankful to the God of heaven for it. In the history of the world, as I mentioned earlier, few have had the word of God. Few less have loved it. Few less have understood it. We are thankful to have it, to love it, and to understand much of it. And we want to pray for his understanding as we proceed through it. There's so much in Romans chapter 1 that a series of sermons for months could deal with Romans 1 itself. The greatness and the glory of God that is described in verses 18 through 24 and His hatred of sin and sinners and what He'll do to them when they reject the knowledge that He freely gives of Himself through the natural creation and His wonderful providence. And then we have a list of sins to make sure that you don't think too poorly of Sodomites in verses 21 through 24, because in verses 28 through the end of the chapter are sins that you've committed right along with them. And so we have no room to judge a sodomite because we're guilty of sins that are equal in the sight of God, and we have committed sins worthy of death as they have. The chapter is full. It tells us about the gospel of Christ and how it's received in verse 16 by those that are saved. And it tells us in verse 17 that it reveals something most precious, the righteousness of God, and how that righteousness is applied to sinners. But we have a salutation and an introduction and a summary before we even get to the 18th verse. The first seven verses are a a salutation where Paul greets his audience. Verses 8 through 15 are an introduction of his great desire for them and why he wanted to come and visit them and what he had in mind for them. Verses 16 and 17 summarize the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then verses 18 through 32 begin into his first main argument, and that is, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. But let's take up with the first verse. There's a great desire to get to verse 17 or 16 or 18, depending on who you are. It's my desire to get to those verses because of the greatness and the glory of God described there. But there's profit to be obtained from what comes before it. And we're going to take it as the Lord leads us. This epistle, though not written first, as I mentioned earlier, is first in depth in breadth, in height, and in its length, the longest of Paul's epistles. Our pace, and I hope that you'll all remember this, our pace or our speed that we take through this epistle reflects babes of all kinds. Babes in age, babes in spiritual understanding, babes in carnality. So we proceed slowly to make sure we get all that we can for them. We want to proceed slowly because every word of God has value. God has not, there's no filler words in the word of God like there were in your sixth grade or tenth grade papers. No filler words. We want all that every word of God can teach us. 
without going farther than the Holy Spirit intended. We want to see the fullness of the gospel by every clause and phrase. And I hope that you'll rule your impatience so that we can maximize our learning together because we will be taking a minority position on the book of Romans. This book is used by Arminians. They call it their Romans road. This book is used by Calvinists. They think that Romans 1.17 justifies their sola fide, or faith only, or justification by human faith. We will be taking a minority position that justification is by the free grace of God through Jesus Christ and His obedience alone. And it is our faith by which we lay hold of that and assure our own hearts of it, but it does not change our standing before God. And we shall prove that through the book of Romans. But please, our pace needs to consider all those things. Our method will be the Bible method. We read in the book, in the law of God, distinctly and give the sense and cause the people to understand the reading. That's found in Nehemiah 8.8. It's rightly dividing the word of truth by carefully enunciating its words and then giving the proper sense as against false senses. David said, my heart is not haughty, nor mine eyes lofty, nor do I exercise myself in matters too high for me. That's the attitude that we want to approach the book with. Psalm 131 and verse 1. David also prayed, open thou mine eyes that I may behold wondrous things in thy law. Psalm 119 and verse 18. Solomon said, I am but a little child. I do not know how to go out or to come in before this thy so great a people. And the Lord blessed him with wisdom. And it's in that attitude of David and Solomon that we want to approach the book of Romans. Our Father in heaven, we do not approach this book with a haughty or lofty mind. Heavenly Father, we will not exercise ourselves in matters too high for us. But we do thank Thee that Thou hast given us Thy words, and we pray that You will open our eyes to behold wonderful things out of Your words. And Father, we are but a little child. We love to be the babes of the Lord Jesus Christ, and we wait upon Thee to reveal things to us that You have hid from the wise and prudent, because it seemed good in thy sight, not because we are better than they, but because it seemed good in thy sight. O Lord, our God, have mercy upon us and guide us correctly that we not misuse or abuse or neglect a single word of your precious word. We humble ourselves before thee and we call upon our God and our king to hear us and to bless us. Open now thy word to us in Jesus' name and for his honor and glory forever. He is God blessed forever. Amen. Amen. Romans chapter 1. Let me read the first seven verses. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ called to be an apostle, separated unto the gospel of God, which he had promised afore by his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, which was made of the seed of David according to the flesh, and declared to be the Son of God with power, according to the Spirit of holiness, by the resurrection from the dead, by whom we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations, for His name, among whom are ye also the called of Jesus Christ. To all that be in Rome... Beloved of God, 
called to be saints. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen and amen. Amen. This is the word of the living God, and these are His inspired and preserved words in our King James Bibles. The first word, Paul. After the Acts of the Apostles, we have the greatest of the Apostles from that book to open up this first epistle. It would be easy to do a study of Paul, and we could be here for the rest of the year. Because Paul has so much information contained in the pages of the New Testament. We know more about him than all the other apostles combined. Just think about the Apostle Paul. The Holy Spirit gives us all about the man's character, the man's faith, his family, his doctrine, his ministry, his enemies, his persecutions, his travels, his experiences, his resume, his testimonies, his trials, his fruit, and a whole lot more in the book of Acts and all of his epistles. Just that first word, Paul, gives us a great deal to consider. Why does the Holy Spirit begin this epistle with the word Paul? Now, when we open up the Bible and we come to the book of Genesis, we don't have the word Moses to the twelve tribes. We have, in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. In Hebrews chapter 1, we don't have Paul, even though he was the author of that epistle, without a doubt. It says, God, who at sundry times and in divers manners spake in time past, and it goes on to describe the Lord Jesus Christ. But here we have the word Paul. And there's a reason for it. The Gentiles love Paul. The reason Paul did not give his name in Hebrews is because the Jews did not like Paul, Because they knew that he spent most of his time with the Gentiles, and they found that highly offensive. And so in order to boost the reception of the book of Hebrews, Paul didn't mention his name. Though if you read it, you can tell that Paul wrote it. There's proof of it within the book. But here we have the word Paul because the Gentiles love Paul. His reputation had spread abroad that Paul, a Jew, a Pharisee, a son of a Pharisee, would fight the Jews to defend the Gentiles. Gentiles loved Paul. Some Bible books indicate the writer and some do not. God's inspired choice is our key, whether we put any attention on the word or not. Because he was writing Gentiles, Paul wasn't cautious about using his name. His reputation had circled far and wide as somebody worthy of the attention of a Gentile church, though there were Jews in this church as well. The imperial and capital city of Rome was used to the best, and they got the best in Paul. He was the apostle of the Gentiles, and he magnified himself as such. Do not let yourself be guilty of a simple crime, and that is to think that we glory too much in Paul. We don't put Paul anywhere near the Lord Jesus Christ. But if you don't glory in Paul, you're contrary to the New Testament Scriptures. Because God raised up that special man, and God got himself great glory by the way he used Paul. Amen. That's why it says in Galatians chapter 1 and verse 24, they glorified God in me. That's why it says in numerous places that Paul said, I will glory. Not in what God hasn't done by me, but what God has done by me. Right. Because that man did a great deal. That man did a lot, and we should be thankful for him. God raised him up, and God made him great, but that man did not squander the grace of God. He used the grace of God, and we are beneficiaries of that. I want you to know that Paul magnified his office, and we're going to magnify his office, and if we do less, we're not getting all the value out of this that we should. And if we go too slow, I hope you'll be patient and remember the reasons about our pace. But turn to Romans 11. We're always going to be in chapter 1. You might as well have a bookmark as thick as a 2 by 4 in Romans chapter 1. But I want you to know how Paul magnified his office as the apostle of the Gentiles. Romans 11, same book, chapter 11, verse 13. I speak to you Gentiles. From this verse, we know that the church at Rome had Gentiles. 
I speak to you Gentiles inasmuch as I am the apostle of the Gentiles. I magnify mine office. What does a magnifying glass do? It makes things larger so that you can see them clearly. And Paul magnified his office as the apostle of the Gentiles, and we want to do the same. He was most fit to write for Gentiles against Jewish legalists and their heresies that had come out of Jerusalem. Look at Acts 15. Acts 15. There there is so much that could be said about Paul. We will not do a biographical study of Paul and all of his travels and all of his doctrine and all of his sufferings and all of his persecution and his trials and testimonies because that would take way too long and does not serve the purpose of to, as to why his name is listed here. These are reasons why his name is put here. He was the apostle of the Gentiles, and he magnified his office. And he's about to tell us in three expressions that he was a servant of Jesus Christ, that he was called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ, and that he was separated, different than other men, unto the gospel of God. But Acts 15 tells us this in verse 1. The Apostle Paul is in his home church of Antioch of Syria. And certain men which came down from Judea taught the brethren and said, Except ye be circumcised after the manner of Moses, ye cannot be saved. When therefore Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and disputation with them, they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain other of them should go up to Jerusalem unto the apostles and elders about this question. And what we have following in Acts chapter 15 is the first and only church council in the New Testament in which they dealt with the issue of what was required of Gentiles in order to be saved. Did they need to be circumcised and keep the law of Moses or not? Paul knew they shouldn't. Barnabas knew they shouldn't. And so they went to Jerusalem to settle the matter, to stop these heretics from coming out of the Jerusalem church and spreading their heresies in the Gentile churches. Paul's a fit author of this book of Romans because he was involved in these church councils and he was involved in this war his entire ministry. He had to write the book of Galatians because of it. He had to write Ephesians chapter 2 and 3 because of it. He had to write Philippians chapter 3 because of it. He had to write Colossians chapter 2 because of it. The poor man fighting Jewish legalists. So when we come back to Romans, we find that name Paul. He's the apostle of the Gentiles and he's very qualified in order to defend them against Jewish legalism, which will take up a great part of this book. Paul's name was changed in Acts chapter 13. I'd like you to turn there. Paul's name was Saul. His Jewish name was Saul. His Hebrew name was Saul. His Roman name, his Latin name, was Paul. And he changed his name in Acts 13. Or Luke changed his name, and from then on, we know him as Paul. It's interesting to think about Saul. What tribe was Saul from? Saul of Tarsus. Benjamin. What tribe was King Saul from? Benjamin. Is it hard for you to imagine his parents naming Saul after King Saul from the tribe of Benjamin? Because after all, who was one of the most illustrious men that had ever been born in the tribe of Benjamin? It was King Saul. So his name was Saul. And he was born and raised in Tarsus. So he was called Saul of Tarsus. But in Acts 13, look at what we have here. On their first evangelistic trip, as, as Paul and Barnabas get in among the Gentiles. I want you to notice that in verse 7, the Apostle Paul is preaching to a man named Sergius Paulus. A prudent man. He was the deputy of that country by the Romans. And he called for Barnabas and Saul and desired to hear the word of God. This is verse 7. But Elamas, the sorcerer, for so is his name by interpretation, he's the Jew that was a false prophet from verse 6, withstood them. This false prophet withstood Saul and Barnabas, seeking to turn away the deputy from the faith. Then Saul, 
who also is called Paul, filled with the Holy Ghost, set his eyes on him. And if you mark that verse, Acts 13, 9, you will never find Saul mentioned again. You will always find Paul. If you'll mark that verse, you'll never find Paul mentioned before that because he's always called Saul. But notice he was preaching to a Gentile whose name was Paulus. And so Paul's Roman name came in very handy, who was also called Paul, because Paul was a freeborn Roman citizen, and every Jew who was also a freeborn Roman citizen had a Roman name. Paul had one. His name was Paul. Saul of Tarsus is Paul. And so we start out the epistle to the Romans with Paul. Let me, let me chase a little thing here about Paul. You know, the Bible tells us in the New Testament, in 1 Timothy chapter 1, that God set forth Paul as the greatest example of saving a sinner. Because there was no one that was more opposed to Jesus of Nazareth than Saul of Tarsus. And so 1 Timothy chapter 1 says, God hath set me forth to be a pattern for them which should believe on Him to life everlasting after me, because if God can save me, He can save anyone else. Because this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. And though we sometimes say that in our prayers, or though we may say that in our testimonies, you will never be like Saul of Tarsus. You have killed no Christians for the cause of blasphemy by Jesus Christ. He was the chief of sinners. He hated Jesus Christ and did more contrary to him than any other man, and he did it with zeal. He hailed them into prison. He forced them to blaspheme. So when he says that, he meant it. He said it by the inspiration of God. He wasn't just flowery, using flowery language to enhance his testimony. He's a great example for us. The, Bible, the New Testament tells us that. Now, if we, go to, if we were to turn to 1 Samuel chapter 10, we would find that a proverb developed in Israel about the first Saul. Some of you lovers of Bible trivia may remember this. The first Saul was a timid man. Though he was very tall, maybe eight foot tall, maybe seven foot tall, he stood from his shoulders up taller than anyone else in Israel. But he was a timid man, and he was not really fit or prepared for the office of king. But God prepared him. God gave him a new heart. And when Samuel met with Saul and then turned and left Saul, Saul began prophesying. And so a proverb developed, and it's mentioned three times in 1 Samuel. Twice in 1 Samuel 10 and once in 1 Samuel 19, a proverb developed that just shocked the nation. Here it is. Is Saul also among the prophets? No way is Saul, the ass chaser, among the prophets? Because that's how we find Saul. Do you know what his illustrious job was? Finding runaway asses from his father's flocks and herds. That's where we find the man that became the first king of Israel. But he prophesied because God gave him a new heart. Is Saul also among the prophets? Three times. Do you know what we say when we read about Saul of Tarsus? Is Saul also among the Christians? Is Saul also among the apostles? Amen. Praise God, he is. Do you know what he has to say about himself and his call to the ministry of being an apostle? I was like one born out of due season. I was late. But I'm an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. I want you to know those things about Paul. The Romans knew those things about Paul because Galatians 1 told us, told us that people would hear about Paul's new life. They had never met him but they would glorify God because of the total transformation in his life. There is no one in your life that will, even if they were converted, would be as big of a transformation as Saul of Tarsus into the Apostle Paul. Therefore, there is hope for every one of you. 
There is hope for every one of us to believe in the life-changing, heart-giving work of God Almighty. He did it with the first Saul in 1 Samuel, and he did it with Saul of Tarsus. And here is where his name is changed. There's much to glorify God because of this man's life. And Paul did not squander God's grace, but he told us, I labored more abundantly than they all. So when we start off this epistle with this man's name, we know it was the most diligent of all the apostles. And may that provoke and encourage us to be as diligent as we can and should be. He took God's grace and exploited it. And I use that word with a Bible basis. Because in Daniel chapter 11, speaking of the Maccabees, it says, They that did know their God did exploits. If you'll remind me, I'll give you a lesson on the Maccabees soon. They are the people that ruled in Israel in the 400 years of silence in the Bible, from Malachi to Matthew. And God used them mightily. They are identified in Daniel chapter 8, they're identified in Daniel chapter 11, and they're identified in Hebrews chapter 11. But it says, they that did know their God did exploits. But if there was one that ever did exploits, it was Paul, by the grace of God. He didn't squander God's grace, but God's grace drove him. Paul said, the love of Christ constraineth me. Because I thus judge. You know, I use this with you all the time because the gospel of Jesus Christ is very logical. And Paul presented it in a very logical way. Because we thus judge that if one died for all, then we're all dead, that they which live should henceforth not live unto themselves, but unto him who died for them. Does that make sense to you? If one man died a substitutionary death for all, then they were all going to have to die themselves. Therefore, if they were saved from death, they ought to live for him that died for them. That's the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what made Paul so ambitious for serving the Lord. You know, when we look at this word, Paul, the Romans loved him. Now, he wrote this epistle. They'd never seen his face. He wrote this epistle to them. But when he came to visit them, you can read about it in Acts chapter 28. You know, he, do you know how, uh, what kind of a trip he had across the Mediterranean Sea? Oh, the poor man. It took him many months to get from the coast of Palestine or Caesarea to Rome, Italy. He had to spend a bunch of time on a, in a place called Melita. You can, just, you can read about his shipwreck in Acts 27. You can read about him being there in Acts 28. But eventually he gets to the boot of Italy. And he embarks, he disembarks from his ship and gets onto the boot of Italy toward the southern part of that boot and makes his way up through the boot toward Rome, which is in the center or toward the upper half. And it says the brethren from Rome came to meet him at a place called the Three Taverns, the Appia Forum. It's mentioned here in Acts 28. They came to meet him, and he took courage when he saw the affection and esteem that those brethren had for him, and they brought him on the way into the city of Rome. Those are the things that we can know about Paul, and so much more could be said, but we are studying the book of Romans. But it begins with the word Paul. And let us thank God for the man that was the apostle of the Gentiles who ordained other men to teach Gentiles, who ordained other men to teach Gentiles, so that we have heard the joyful sound ourselves. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ. What an illustrious office, the highest on earth. Is there any office higher than a servant of Jesus Christ? The Apostle Paul uses this expression, and the next one, and the next one, to bolster his reception by the Roman audience. That he was not coming as Paul. He was not coming as a man. He was not coming as um, with man-made doctrines. He was coming as a servant of Jesus Christ, an apostle of Jesus Christ, and separated from men and from other pursuits to one thing, the gospel of God. He does this to bolster their reception of him. He's not just bragging. He's using this with wisdom for to help the audience receive him whom he had never met. Most epistles in the New Testament were churches where he had labored among them. 
Not so with the Romans. A servant of Jesus Christ. I come by the authority of Jesus Christ. I come in His glory and His power. I am nothing. In fact, when you see me, he doesn't say all this, but it's taught in the rest of the New Testament. When you see me, I'm not very impressive to look upon. But I am a servant of Jesus Christ. If an ambassador, if an ambassador were to walk into a nation of the world in a few hundred years B.C. and say, my name is Philip. I am a servant of Prince Alexander, the Macedonian. It helped his message. You say, what are you talking about? Because he made appeal to the king he represented. I am a servant of King Alexander, Prince of the Macedonians. I have a word for your king. He was given audience, usually. Whenever he wasn't given audience, it was only a matter of weeks or months until that nation was overrun by Alexander the Great. Now, Paul didn't come in the name of some seminarian or some seminary from Jerusalem, nor did he come in the name of a rabbi. He came in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what it starts right off with. And brethren, it's the highest office we can ever have is a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at Mark chapter 13. Mark chapter 13, because I want to, to show you the prophecy of the servants of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul was one of them, and Paul was one of the greatest of them, if not the greatest. The apostles often introduced their epistles this way. James did it, Peter did it, Jude did it. A servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you're an ambassador, your weight is not in your name. Your weight is in the name of the king that you represent. And so the apostles would start off with a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. A servant of Jesus Christ. Then their office. Then something else about them possibly, as we have here in Romans. In Mark 13, look at this precious word. Verse 34. For the Son of Man, Jesus speaking of Himself. For the Son of Man is as a man taking a far journey. Here is a simile indicated by the word as. We're, getting, we're having a comparison made for us to understand Jesus' future actions. For the Son of Man is as a man taking a far journey, who left his house and gave authority to his servants and to every man his work and commanded the porter to watch. A man who's got a big estate, when he would leave it to go on a long journey, he would assign his servants with specific tasks that they were to do, and he would give authority to them to get the jobs done. And he would command the porter to watch. This is the Lord Jesus Christ going into heaven. He took a long journey, but he's coming back. And when he took his long journey, he gave authority and power to servants, and those servants were first apostles, which we'll get to in the next clause, and Paul was one of them. This title showed he was an ambassador of the high king of heaven. He had messianic authority from the Lord Jesus Christ for his kingdom. Notice how he writes of himself. Look at Galatians chapter 1 and verse 11. A servant of Jesus Christ. Do you know how blessed we are to have in writing a message from a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ? One of those men given authority and power to keep the house while the Son of Man went on a long journey? The foundation of the churches of the Lord Jesus Christ are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. That is what we are built on. And so we delight in these words and we understand the authority that they convey about Paul. Look at Galatians 1.11. I certify you, brethren, that the gospel which, of, which was preached of me is not after man. For I neither received it of man, neither was I taught it, but by the revelation of Jesus Christ. 
I am coming with a personal message from Jesus Christ. That is exciting. A servant of Jesus Christ. Turn back a few pages to 1 Corinthians 14. I want you to see his authority from Jesus Christ and to delight in it. 1 Corinthians 14, 37. After having told the Corinthians that they were all messed up on spiritual gifts for chapter 12, for chapter 13, and for chapter 14, and after laying down a whole lot of rules that they weren't keeping about how their women were to behave themselves in church services and how they were to practice tongues in church services, here's what he says in verse 37. If any man think himself to be a prophet or spiritual, let him acknowledge that the things that I write unto you are the commandments of the Lord. Amen. Do you like the man's authority? Amen. Is, Paul, is Paul a name dropper? Oh yes, praise the Lord. Sometimes do you read a full sentence of the Apostle Paul and find him using the name the Lord Jesus Christ two, three, four, five times? Was he a name dropper? Oh yes, because the name he dropped is above every name. And in that name came all the authority for New Testament doctrine and practice. If any man think himself to be a prophet, this is just after he told the prophets at Corinth how they were to conduct themselves. If any of you don't like what I just told about how you're supposed to use your office, or if any of you think that you're spiritual and you understand these things, I just want you to know that what I just wrote are the commandments of the Lord. Thank you. Romans chapter 1. Back to Romans 1. When the Apostle Paul would rebuke a devil, what does the Bible say? And he came out of her that hour. Acts chapter 16. The soothsaying little maiden in the city of Philippi. Seven Jews that thought themselves to be exorcists in Acts chapter 19 found a man possessed of the devil. And they had watched the Apostle Paul at work, and they said, We adjure thee by Jesus whom Paul preacheth. Those devils that were in that man said, Jesus I know, and Paul I know, but who are you? And then that one man jumped on the seven men, stripped them naked, and chased them out of that house. That meant that there was quite a bit of demonic power or devil power in that man. However, those devils knew the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ and of His servant, the Apostle Paul. I hope I'm not boring you with the first few words of Romans chapter 1. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ. The devils knew it. And they trembled before him because he used the name of the Lord Jesus Christ with authority. Why did Paul use these words? To bolster his authority as coming from Christ for his doctrine. That it wasn't man-made. I didn't receive it from men, nor was I taught it by man. I received it from the Lord Jesus Christ. He was not coming to them as Paul, but rather as an ambassador of the high king of heaven. Now let me give you a practical point from this. Are you a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ? When does the Bible call you a servant of the Lord Christ? Turn to Colossians chapter 3. And we'll go on to the next clause. What are you all going to do tomorrow morning? You're going to get up and go to work. And when you go to work, do you know how you're supposed to go? Look at this text. Colossians chapter 3. And verse, did I say a verse number already? Good. I thought I had said verse 17, but it certainly isn't verse 17. It's verse 24. Do you notice... In verse 22, the topic that is taken up. Servants. Colossians 3.22 begins a four-verse section dealing with how you conduct yourself on the job. Servants. Verse 22. Obey in all things your masters according to the flesh. Not with eye service as men-pleasers, but in singleness of heart, fearing God. And whatsoever ye do, do it heartily. As to the Lord, and not unto men, 
knowing that of the Lord ye shall receive the reward of the inheritance, for ye serve the Lord Christ. That makes the job pretty exciting. If you understand these words and will humble yourself to them. But he that doeth wrong shall receive for the wrong which he hath done. And there is no respect of persons. God is going to judge you without regard to your personality. Without regard to your temperament. Without regard to your reputation. Without regard to your resume. Based on how you treat your boss at at your job tomorrow. Because you serve the Lord Christ. Back to Romans chapter 1. That is not what the Holy Spirit intended by the words, a servant of Jesus Christ. What did the Holy Spirit, but I wanted, to, I wanted to remind you of that, in case you're thinking of Paul being a servant of Jesus Christ, and you're wondering, I want to be a servant of Jesus Christ. Okay, then get up and go to work tomorrow as unto the Lord. Doing whatever they tell you to do, doing it heartily. You can serve the Lord Christ. What's the reason for that? Those words there, a servant of Jesus Christ, to bolster the reception of his epistle because he was not coming as Paul only, but Paul as an ambassador of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why. Because the rest of the New Testament explains that to us. Called to be an apostle. When the Bible says that, you, that Paul was called to be an apostle, the word called, like it's used in some other places and like we're going to encounter it in a few verses, means he was appointed or ordained to be an apostle. That's what the word called means. A man's calling is his work. When a man's called to a work, he's appointed or ordained to it. Let me prove it to you. Turn to 1 Timothy chapter 2. 1 Timothy chapter 2. In Calvinistic circles, there is a doctrine called the effectual call. I do not find Bible evidence for the effectual call. They use the words effectual call as subterfuge to cover their doctrine of gospel regeneration. What they mean by the effectual call is that God calls everyone by His gospel, or everyone that ever hears the gospel is called by the gospel, but only to some does the gospel regenerate them, and then it's the effectual call. Because the call of the gospel is given power to be effectual and to accomplish its desired end of regenerating hearers. Not taught in the Bible. There has to be a change made, and regeneration has to occur first before anyone will respond to the gospel. And it's not accomplished by the gospel. It's accomplished by the Holy Spirit in front of the gospel. But we'll get to that point in its time. Right now, we want to look at the word called as it applies to Paul being an apostle. 1 Timothy 2.7 says this, Whereunto I am ordained a preacher and an apostle. So we're finding synonyms by comparing spiritual things with spiritual to understand the word called. It's going to be important. I am not belaboring a moot point. If you want to take, if you want to understand the minority position that we're going to take on the epistle of the Romans, you better understand some of these distinctions. What does it mean when it says he was called to be an apostle? Does that mean he received a phone call? Does that mean he was visited? Because sometimes we say, I'm going to call on them, meaning I'm going to visit them. Does it mean he, w- does it mean he was asked to be an apostle? Was he invited to be an apostle? He was, a point, he was ordained to be an apostle according to 1 Timothy 2.7. Now look at 2 Timothy 1.11. We've got the same man writing about the very same event. How did he become an apostle? We want to understand the word called. Appointed or ordained? Ordained was in 1 Timothy 2.7. 2 Timothy 1.11. Whereunto I am appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher of the Gentiles. Amen. When it says he was called to be an apostle, it means he was appointed to be an apostle. He was ordained to be an apostle by the Lord Jesus Christ. There was no board. There was no missionary board. No board got together, looked at his picture, 
looked at a picture of his wife and children, read his resume, and then voted. Do we want to make Paul an apostle? Should we extend a call to the apostle Paul? Well, he wasn't the, he wasn't the apostle Paul until they extended their call to But no, none of that ever happened. Jesus appointed and ordained him. And he's going to tell us more about that ordination. It wasn't something that happened in time. It had happened long before that. But here we have the two synonyms shown to us in the Word of God. I want to give you one more passage, and we're going to, we're going to be hitting it again. But look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1 as it applies to our salvation. When it says that Paul was called to be an apostle, God chose him to be an apostle. God ordained him to be an apostle. God appointed him to be an apostle. So when we come to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and Paul is dealing with the different responses that occur when the gospel is preached, here's what he says. Look at verse 23, 2. Verse 22 of 1 Corinthians 1. For the Jews require a sign, and the Greeks seek after wisdom. There's the market survey done of Jews and Greeks as to what they really wanted to join the New Testament. The Jews wanted a sign. They wanted lots of miracles done. Fire coming down from heaven. Blah, blah, blah. The Greeks wanted wisdom that would match up with Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, and the rest of their philosophers. Verse 23. But we preach Christ crucified. Unto the Jews, a stumbling block. Unto the Greeks, foolishness. We do not match up with our market survey at all. The market survey being given by the Holy Ghost, we will not modify our message to meet either group's expectations. Verse 24, but unto them which are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. When we preach to an audience of Greeks, those that are not called think what we're doing is foolishness. Those that are called see in our message the power and the wisdom of God in saving sinners. When we preach to Jews because we don't give them miracles, it's a stumbling block to them. They don't really want to hear about it. But to those Jews in the audience that are called, they see Christ, the power and the wisdom of God in our preaching of the gospel. Well, what is this call? We know what it is if you've read the Bible. It's God's choice of them to eternal life. It's God's ordination of them to eternal life. Doesn't it say in Acts chapter 13 and verse 48, and as many as were ordained ordained to eternal life believed. That's what it means to be called. Now, can we keep reading and find out more right here? Verse 25, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Oh, there's so much in these verses, but this is... This would be preaching through Corinthians in order to preach through Romans. Verse, I, I need this. If you ever run into a Calvinist on the effectual call, you will need it. And if you don't, bear with me. Verse 26, for ye see your calling. Okay, Paul, keep going. Tell me what it is. For ye see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, are called. okay. But God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise, and God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty, and base things of the world, and things which are despised hath God chosen, yea, and things which are not, to bring to naught things that are, that no flesh should glory in His presence. Now do you know what the word called means? It means to be chosen, ordained, and appointed by God. The Apostle Paul was chosen, ordained, and appointed by God to be an apostle. And you were chosen, ordained, and appointed by God to eternal life. Praise His glorious name. Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. Called to be an apostle. Do you know what's all in those words? An apostle. The apostles had the highest office and greatest gifts of the New Testament church. Do you know what it says in 1 Corinthians 12, 28? You ought to see it. 1 Corinthians 12, 28. Obviously, you can see that I'm not in a hurry. But I am hurrying. 1 Corinthians 12, 28. And God hath set some in the church. What does it say after that? And God hath set some in the church. First, apostles. 
I love it when the Lord ranks things for us so we can understand priorities. First, apostles. Secondarily, prophets. Thirdly, teachers. After that, miracles. Then, gifts of healings. Helps, governments, diversities of tongues. I can't but help chase the little rabbit here. But the last gift and the lowest gift is speaking in tongues. So when you meet these Pentecostals and Charismatics that are all rip-roaring excited about speaking in tongues, you remember that the Apostle Paul, when he listed all gifts, listed them last and least of all the gifts. In fact, it's about three gifts behind being a deacon. Helps. And do you know what Paul said anyway? I speak more in tongues than ye all. Bless his name. No wonder the epistle starts out with Paul. Even when it came to the least gift, he had more than any at Corinth, and all they knew how to do was speak in tongues. And he was an apostle. How's that for... Do you know what an apostle had? What gift didn't an apostle have? Was Paul a prophet? Look at all the prophecies he wrote us. Could he do miracles? Was he a teacher? He had them all. Called to be... An apostle. Praise the Lord for the man he sent for us to hear the gospel. They had the highest office. Look at Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to learn the Bible through the spectacles of the epistle to the Romans. If we live long enough. Ephesians chapter 4. Verse 8, Wherefore he saith, when he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. Wherefore he saith. This is a quotation. Can you hold another 2 by 4 at Ephesians chapter 4 and flip back to Psalm 68 with me? I want to get that quotation. Psalm 68. Psalm 68 and verse 18. We now have... A finger held at Romans 1, a finger at Ephesians 4, and we're going to Psalm 68 because I want to read to you where this quotation came from. A servant of Jesus Christ called to be an apostle. Now, we've already seen some verses where Paul said, I didn't receive my doctrine from men, I wasn't taught it by men, but by the Lord Jesus Christ. Because it's the Lord Jesus Christ that gave him the gift of being an apostle. It's the Lord Jesus Christ that called him to be an apostle. Psalm 68, 18. Thou hast ascended on high. Who is this speaking of? The Lord Jesus Christ. Thou hast ascended on high. Thou hast led captivity captive. Amen. He led death captive. that, That had us captured. Thou hast received gifts for men. Yea, for the rebellious also, that the Lord God might dwell among them. Was Paul one of those rebellious ones? Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? Why kickest thou against the pricks? Now that verse said that Jesus Christ ascended up on high, having led captivity captive, and he received gifts for men. Back to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 8. Wherefore he saith... He's speaking of the grace of God given to men for their offices in the church. It's in verse 7. Wherefore he saith, when he ascended up on high, he's quoting from Psalm 68, 18, he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. He received gifts from God to give to his church as a reward for what he did in going to the cross. But then he dispensed those gifts because both are true. Jesus of Nazareth received gifts from God to give to men. The prophecy in Psalm 68 was him receiving them as a reward for being in heaven. Ephesians 4 is how they got down to the church because Jesus gave them. He gave gifts unto men. Now that he ascended, what is it but that he also descended first into the lower parts of the earth. That's Jesus' humiliation at his first coming, being born of Mary. He that descended is the same also that ascended up far above all heavens that he might fill all things. That is our Savior, Jesus Christ. And if you don't like these verses enough to go through them, I feel sorry for you. 
Because these are fantastic words of our Bible about the Lord Jesus Christ. With that parenthetical element ended, we have verse 11, and he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers. There's the gifts. First, apostles. Secondarily, prophets. Thirdly, teachers of two sorts, one an evangelist and one an ordinary teacher. This is what it meant to be called an apostle. They were witnesses of the Lord Jesus Christ and His resurrection. Look at Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1. To what is an apostle? An apostle is the highest office of the New Testament church. They had all the gifts. They could do anything. The apostle Paul could heal with handkerchiefs and aprons. If a handkerchief got in the hands of Paul and then got in the hand of your sick aunt, your sick aunt would be healed by Paul's healing power because he had a little bit of the gift of miracles. Now, when you turn your television on and some televangelist wants $80 that is tax deductible for one of their handkerchiefs, it didn't come from Paul, so it's not going to do anything except need to be washed if you use it. And you might as well use it because it's not going to do anything else. In Acts chapter 1, we need to replace Judas Iscariot. So Peter stands up and leads the apostles in this work. He says in verse 21, Wherefore, of these men which have companied with us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John unto that same day that he was taken up from us, must one be ordained to be a witness with us of his resurrection. That's the qualification for an apostle. So when you read in our local papers that there is a church in this city that has an apostle named Ron Carpenter, he isn't an apostle in the Bible sense of the word because he hasn't accompanied with the Lord Jesus Christ from the baptism of John to his ascension into heaven. He has not seen the risen Lord Jesus Christ to be a witness of the resurrection. That is an eyewitness. You say, but what about Paul? He wasn't part of that group either. That's right. He got a special showing of the Lord Jesus Christ. And do you know how many showings there have been since? None. Because 1 Corinthians 15 says, Last of all, He was seen of me. He was seen of me. Do you know what that means? Paul saw the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. Didn't He appear to him on the road to Damascus? Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 9 so that you can see that Paul would appeal to the fact that he had seen the Lord Jesus Christ and was truly an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul, Paul who could raise the dead, Paul who could heal the sick with handkerchiefs, Paul who could speak in any language, Paul who could do all those miracles and was a prophet of God, Paul himself would show you on his resume that he had seen the Lord Jesus Christ in order to verify and confirm that he was indeed a biblical apostle. Look at 1 Corinthians 9.1. Am I not an apostle? Rhetorical question. Yes, you are, Paul. Am I not free? Yes, you are, Paul, meaning that he could live off the Corinthians for what he was giving them. Have I not seen Jesus Christ our Lord? Yes, you have. It's well known in the pages of Scripture. So Paul was one of those great apostles chosen by the Lord in order to be an eyewitness of the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul had a great accumulation of gifts. If you read Romans 15 last night, you read about them in verses 18 and 19 about the mighty signs and wonders that the Apostle Paul did to make the Gentiles obedient to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Why did Paul use these words? Why do we have these words called to be an apostle? Because he was appealing to the fact that he had the highest office in the New Testament church and that the Roman saints in the church at Rome ought to give his epistle their full attention. That's why he used those words. He was not coming as just any officer in the kingdom of Jesus Christ. He was coming as his apostle. Thus far, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle. We know exactly what those words mean. 
And we should want to give all of our attention, our humility, our obedience to everything that comes from this man's pen by the inspiration of the Holy Ghost. Though, for me to keep you learning the book all the way through, Paul did not write this epistle. Who did write it? Tertius. We're told that in the 16th chapter. Tertius wrote it. Paul dictated it. The Holy Spirit inspired it. And he was a servant of Jesus Christ, an apostle of the Most High God, and a foundation stone and officer of the New Testament church. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word.